1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
0: And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But
1: it
2: takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat. Brush, rinse, repeat.
0: Brush, rinse, repeat with two girls, and it was like, he, he'll have to give us a ride, he can't fill us, no, he can't reach us. He'll let us in his car, and the thoughts were all alone in this empty void. you know, the head, the visual, this doesn't look right, they got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes, and how intelligent they seem. this doesn't look right, these gremlin-types.
3: All right, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal. I guess you heard the intro music as usual. We don't get to hear it, but you do. <laughs> How's it going, Rob?
4: Uh, it's going great. It's going pretty good. <clears throat> yeah. Well, not bad. Yeah.
3: yeah. You said you were, uh, <laughs> you said you felt a little under the weather today.
4: Yeah, it's just sinuses have been going on for weeks now, and to the point where I don't remember what it's like to feel healthy anymore. I don't think. Been such a bad allergy it's not season. Good, no.
3: You got allergies. You got like you know red fluorescent bugs crawling all over all over the garage.
4: Yeah, it gets crazy here this time of
3: year. Yeah, things are a disaster.
4: The yard's growing like a jungle. I can't keep up with it.
3: <laughs> One man against yard work.
4: Yeah, it's almost like nature is trying to take over all the time.
3: <laughs> well, guys, we're doing a little time traveling today because uh, today is April 30th and you're probably going to hear this show in like two weeks from the time that we're recording it and so we're actually doing an intro to the to uh, our show with Brian Godawa but we're actually about to record the show that we're going to talk about with our first guest that we have scheduled for today which you probably already heard which is Mike Suave talking about John Teeter which is time, which travel. Is a time travel right yeah. so so we are we are indeed traveling through time and are you confused yet Rob
4: <laughs> no because I read all about uh, Mr what's his name John Teeter yes
3: what it so you read about it?
4: Yes. Would quite you
3: a read, bit. Did you read like some of the off of like Wikipedia or something? Well,
4: oh, I read the whole Wikipedia thing, and then I started browsing everywhere else. On I, I read all of his uh, all the original posts and stuff that were, you know, that spawned this whole thing. And
3: oh, okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to give too much of it away, but because this, this is time travel, because we haven't even talked about the uh, right.
4: Well, it's not a spoiler heater. for the listeners because they've already heard it.
3: Well, some of them may have or may not have. Well, uh, no, that's no, true. that's true. Yeah, I'm getting confused, <laughs> <See>? man. <laughs> it's rough. This is really confusing. <laughs> Well, since we haven't actually really talked about it yet, what did you think about all that? Oh, and I may ask you that again, possibly. Yeah,
4: which you'll have heard already. Um, <laughs> it, it's fascinating. I I'd never really heard of it, which is surprising because I I remember when the Y two K stuff was going on. I was really uh-huh. into all of that and researching a lot of that stuff and um a lot of his. His claims mimic a, a similar thing that's built into what Unix, which is what all operating systems are based on, in twenty thirty-eight they're gonna run out of space to uh to to uh, save the dates the way that they have in the format they always have done. And there's that's like postulated as a reason why he had to go back in time to get this specific type of computer which had this ability to to decode Computer languages that most people didn't even know that it had the ability to do, which is what leads a lot of credence to to his claims from a lot of people.
3: And it was really interesting stuff. Yeah, it is indeed interesting. Well, we won't belabor it too much more because <laughs> that's in the past for some people, but, right. in, the, <laughs> but in the future for us. <laughs> yes, this is our
4: traveling to the future to review a show we have not yet done.
3: Yes. And um, we don't have Luke which is another, uh, I think, maybe another time travel slippage, possibly. <laughs> we, we, we may have Luke. He might pop there, up There at is any a time. possibility. He may have been on the last show. Who knows? We don't really know at this point. <laughs> so, you know, that's the, that's kind of like the uh, the powers that a mythical creature has, right, is uh, appearing in different time paradigms. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Well, tonight, guys, as I said, we got Brian Godawa coming on. And I wanted to talk about and Rob. This this will be I think interesting for you especially Christian eschatology. Ooh, and that's what we're going to talk about with with uh, Brian. Uh, we're going to talk about a well. He's got a new series out coming out. It's called Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And Brian holds the I believe he holds the preterist view. Of biblical eschatology, and I'm going to kind of go over what that means, but I'm not going to belabor the point on Preterist. I'm going to talk about two of the others, okay? Now, I've gone through into the uh, Book of Knowledge, which is—what's the Book of Knowledge? Oh, Facebook. Wikipedia. I knew that. (laughs) Uh let's first of all I want to define the term what what does that mean eschatology because it's a it's a it's a kind of a big word kind of a strange word if you're not familiar with it. Uh major branch of study within Christian theology dealing with the last things, quote unquote. Eschatology from two Greek words meaning last and study is the study of end things. Whether the end of an individual life, the end of the age, the end of the world, and the nature of the kingdom of God, broadly speaking, Christian eschatology is the study of the destiny of humankind as it is described in the Bible, which is the primary source for all Christian eschatological studies. Now, let me ask you before I go on. Besides this show, what's been your exposure to some of this stuff? What's that been like for you? Um. Well, there's,
4: you know, there's the pop culture realm. Obviously, um, I think a lot of things from the religious world have bled over into that. You know, you get like the, um. The revelation stuff, um, the four horsemen, all that kind of thing. Um. As far as Christian eschatology. I don't really have a whole lot more exposure than that. Okay. I, mean, I mean I've read Revelations, I've I've sure. looked into a little bit of that kind of stuff, but
3: not as much as you as you not as much as you as probably, probably have on the show. Right. In other words, yeah. okay. Um So there are three kinds according to the book of knowledge. You have preterism, you have historicism. And you have futurism. Now, preterism, I'm not going to get into because we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about with Brian, what that means. But basically, what it means is preterism from the Latin praetarius, meaning gone by, is an approach which sees prophecy as chiefly being fulfilled in the past, especially in the case of the book of Revelation during the first century. I'm going to leave that there. Okay, basically what a preterist believes is that everything was fulfilled in the next, I think, 40 years after Jesus' death, and with the um, destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. So everything in the book of Revelation and some other eschatological works that are inspired throughout the Bible um, complete themselves with that. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Okay. Okay. There are two other kinds. Actually, there's three other kinds, but one isn't talked about as much. Historicism. Historicism is an approach which sees prophecy as being fulfilled in the past, present, and future, including in the case of the book of Revelation during the previous two millennia. In particular, many historicists view the book of Revelation as a text employing symbols and its communication of prophecy to the elect church, regarding the actors and events involved during the Great Controversy. Specifically, historicists consider the Book of Revelation to be a symbolic prophetic presentation of the struggle of Protestantism to survive the continuing persecutions of the papacy. Historicists usually consider events such as the Great Tribulation Tribulation as having occurred during the period of absolute papal supremacy from 538 to 1798. So basically, Historicism says that everything that is happening in the Book of Revelation is an ongoing historical process. In other words, it takes time. And a lot of it has to do with the relationship of Protestantism to the Catholic Church. In other words, the Catholic Church is kind of like the Antichrist figure, and the Tribulation is the time of the rule of the Antichrist as symbolized by the Catholic Church. You getting all this, Rob? Is this Is all all sinking in? Mostly. <laughs> the only thing that I don't really get is that it's considered to be from year 538 to 1798, which you can think about 1798 and what was going on at that time. You know, the Catholic Church had kind of declined in its influence way before then, as far as being like a great kind of world secular power. It just wasn't anymore. I think a lot of that is due to that there's this 1260 days thing that is that is listed in the book of Revelation and they're saying that the 1260 days are symbolic of some amount of years and therefore you get to 1798. Um so yeah. So there's a, there's one of the people they say that is the groups that they say is um historicist is our Seventh-day Adventist, which is funny because I remember my mother becoming Seventh-day Adventist at a certain point. She isn't anymore, but, and I was around a lot of Seventh-day Adventists when I grew up and because I lived in Collegedale, which is down the street from Southern College, which is a big Adventist College here in Tennessee. And they would often talk about the book of Revelation, and they would often talk about the beast and all this kind of thing, and about about things that were yet to come, yet to happen. But apparently they're considered historicists because they believe in the whole, you know, Catholic Church as the beast and and starting the Great Tribulation. Okay. Um, so... According to E.B. Eliot, the first six seals of the Book of Revelation outline the temporary prosperity of the empire of heathen Rome, followed by its decline and fall, which covers the time period A.D. 96 to 396. The first seal, as revealed to St. John by the angel, was to signify what was to happen soon after John, seeing the visions of Patmos and, then, and that the second, third, and fourth seals in like manner were to have commencing dates, each in chronological sequence following the preceding seal. Okay. Now, there's futurism. Futurism is the next school of thought. <laughs> okay. So far,
4: all these schools of thought think that events have already taken place?
3: Uh, the preterists or? believe that events have already taken place way in the past. Historicists believe that some events have already taken place, but it's still an ongoing I gotcha. moving process. It's still, it's still happening, in other words. As long as the church is around... This process, as listed in the book of Revelation, will still occur. Okay. Okay. Now, futurists believe, obviously, from the use of the word, that everything in the book of Revelation and other works in the Bible are yet to happen. Now, these are the most common people. Okay. Some of these people are, and there's divisions within futurism, which I'm going to get to. But these are the people that you see all over the place with their, you know, big charts that say what's going to happen, and people that believe the Antichrist is someone that is yet to come, that uh, he's going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, and there's going to be the big battle of Armageddon. And they, so
4: this is what most of us that have not studied the subject think of as...
3: Sure, right, right. This is what this is what you most you see because this is the most this is the most vocal of of the groups and probably the most numerous actually. There's not a lot of preterists around, and and there are some. There's another school of thought called amillennialism, but I'll get to that here in a second. Um, and historicists I think are a little bit few few and far between. So most people in Christian evangelical thought most of them are evangelical, are futurists, okay? Now, there's several kinds. but I'll read, first of all, what that means. In futurism, parallels may be drawn with historical events, but most eschatological prophecies, keyword is most, are clearly referring to events which have not yet been fulfilled, but will take place at the end of the age and the end of the world. Most prophecies will be fulfilled during a global time of chaos known as the Great Tribulation and afterwards. Futurist beliefs usually have a close association with premillennialism and dispensationalism. Futurist beliefs were presented in the Left Behind series. You remember the Left Behind series? You remember those books that came out in the like, yeah? I never read the early two
4: thousands. Yeah, I'm familiar with them.
3: I read a few of them. They're interesting books. I mean, they're entertaining. Mm -hmm. to say the least. And then there's a fourth one, idealism, also known as spiritual or non-literal approach. The book of Revelation and other eschatological materials are interpreted always symbolically. Different authors may interpret the judgments and resurrections on a more existential level, argue that the beast and Babylon represent a variety of social injustices, including any corrupt or even all moral governments or view The recreation of the earth and the establishment of the kingdom of heaven as a general improvement of society. Okay, so that is, that is those, those are the four main views. Okay, there's a lot here to really kind of get through, but I'll go through some of the the futurist stuff. So any thoughts on this so far? I had no idea it was so varied. Yes, I just—I I, I had no idea either. And honestly, it is extremely complicated.
4: See, I always thought like what I know of it is that, um, <laughs> the Book of Revelations obviously was written a long, long time ago, and it details this uh, both the Second Coming and the Antichrist. And I just kind of thought most people were waiting for those two opposing figures to rise and lead a battle against each other or something along those lines.
3: But there are some that are not within preterism. You actually have a division, which is partial preterism, full preterism. We'll get to that with Brian. Um, I switched over to, to another page. So these are the divisions which are in futurism. Okay. Are Are you ready? Yeah. All right, this is where the charts come in. <laughs> God, okay. Should I take notes? Most of this is called is out of the idea of the of the millennium, where the millennium of a th- of Christ, a thousand year reign after his victory over Satan actually takes place, and where all these events take place. Okay. And some of the and whether or not you're talking about a literal thousand year reign or you're talking about a non literal symbolic reign. Okay? Hyperbole. Right. Okay. First of all, we have premillennialism. Okay. Following me yet? Premillennial, yes. Christ's second coming before a literal one thousand year period, known by some as a thousand year sabbath, is preceded by a gradual deterioration of human society and behavior and the expansion of evil through an end-time government or kingdom. This school of thought can be divided into into three main interpretations. So we have subdivisions within subdivisions, Rob. Dispensational, mid-tribulation, Ed, which also means pre-rath and historic premillennialism are post-tribulation viewpoint. Now, before we go on, dispensationalism, which is also known as premillennialism, got it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, Dispensational—the the word dispensation comes from this whole idea that there are different ages where man is expected to do different things now the or late there's like five or six of them depending on who you talk to now some have three and some have four but you have you have six okay there're supposedly six one is the time of the law and then the other time is the time of grace which we are now in because of Jesus dying on the cross can I get a hallelujah hallelujah amen okay pre-tribulation. Premillennialism or dispensationalist view These are the left behind guys This is Tim LaHaye and whatever the other guy's name was Uh, Also, incidentally This was all come up with by A group called the Plymouth Brethren In England in the 19th century One of which was um, Alistair Crowley Who grew up Plymouth Brethren I just thought I'd throw that in You know, because you gotta mention he's got to make an
4: appearance. Yeah, Yeah,
3: you need to have that little thing ready. The rapture of the church occurs just prior to the seven year tribulation, where Christ returns for his saints and to meet them in the air. This is followed by the tribulation, the rise of the Antichrist to world rule, the return of Christ to the Mount of Olives in Armageddon, resulting in a literal 1,000 year millennial reign of the Messiah centered in restored Jerusalem. Okay, that is the pre-tribulation or dispensationalist view. That's the most common one. This is the big fight. So as I've heard uh, Dr. Future call pre-tribulation, rapture, burn, baby, burn. In other words, (laughs) all the Christians are going to be taken out of here, and we're going to watch the shit show as everybody else gets killed and has to go through the tribulation. Right, Mad Max. Yeah. Then there is then the people that don't that say no pre tribbers they call them pre tribbers. Don't say, start
4: throwing slang in here. They, they, say, they,
3: they say uh, th- they say that um, they are uh, they are, they get that thrown at them, and people say that no you're wrong. Then you have the pre wrath, the mid tribulation viewpoint. The rapture of the church occurs in the midst of the seven year period. Mid-tribulation view holds that the rapture occurs halfway through. Pre-wrath holds that the rapture occurs sometime in the midst of the tribulation in the latter three and a half years just before God's wrath is poured out upon the nations. Okay. God's wrath. I mean like locusts and shit. Okay. Right. Bad stuff. Historic premillennialism Our post-tribulation view. The rapture of the church, the body of the believers, happens after a period of great tribulation, with the church being caught up to meet Christ in the air and will accompany Him to earth to share in His literal or figurative thousand-year rule. Now, there's the that one is more like, okay, Christians, you don't get a free break. You're gonna, you know, suffer through everybody with the rest of us and rest of us sinners, and uh, you're not gonna get out of here. You're not gonna get off so easy. Okay. All right, so that's the divisions within premillennialism.
4: <laughs> Got it. Right. Okay. I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. Okay. So, so the pre-wrath people believe that um, non-Christians would have, was is that giving them an opportunity to repent?
3: Yes. Okay. Pre-wrath people believe that there's going to be this period called the wrath of God, and like in like three and a half years of the tribulation about the time that the uh, Antichrist reveals himself as the Antichrist, he will come out and begin to kill a lot of people, and then God's going to kill a lot of people too. So you have this, uh, that's what's known as God's wrath, and they believe right before that's going to happen, everybody's going to be taken out of here. That's what that means. Uh, and then post-millennial means that, you suffer all the way through all seven years, and Christ comes, and then you're saved. Okay, and then there's two other schools of that. I'm not going to go into those. I'm just, I'm just not. Okay. <laughs> if you want to know where I'm reading this, this is from Wikipedia. It's schools, uh, uh, schools of eschatological thought. All right. Now we went through premillennialism which means everything is going to happen before the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. All right. Then there is post millennialism. Christ's second coming is seen as occurring after the 1000 years. It's Luke, which many in the school of thought believe is ushered in by the church. Okay. Now, it's all lies. A, a, a millennialism. All right, Rob? Okay. <laughs> Non-literal thousand years are long age between Christ's first and second comings. The millennial reign of Christ, as pictured in the book of Revelation, is viewed as Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, another name of it is realized millennialism. And otherwise, it's more of a symbolic thing. Because it emphasizes an inaugurated future in the first coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit of the Pentecost. It is the view held by the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches as well as by a number of the older Protestant denominations such as the Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anglicans. Which is a good deal of Christians in the world, actually.
4: I still don't understand what that one means. <laughs> I got pre-millennial and post-millennial. But.
3: Okay, amillennialism means that um, it's symbolic. It's a non-literal thousand years.
4: Okay, but we are not it...
3: actually... There's not, actual, there's not an actual physical reign on earth.
4: So the rapture just happens and that's that?
3: Well, some of these people don't actually believe the rapture is going to happen. That's oh, the thing. Man.
4: More divisions?
3: Yes. So like <laughs> the Catholic and Orthodox, I don't think they believe in that.
4: I wrote all this down for you, now, I'm not
3: sure about the Lutherans. You grew up Lutheran. Maybe you can tell me. Uh-huh. But uh, I don't think they do either. <laughs> I, they
4: never, at least in the congregation I was raised in, never really talked anything about any of it. it was,
3: see, that's the thing.
4: Is like it's kind of it's it's, too dark and spooky. It's,
3: yeah, it's kind of debatable between whether the whole idea of the rapture emerges with the Plymouth Brethren or a little bit before them in the 19th century, or it has antecedents before that in like the Middle Ages. There you go, Rob. That's uh, that's a little bit of them. Uh. Pretty complex, isn't it?
4: Uh, It's way, way, way deeper than I thought it could possibly go. Yeah, and there's a lot of other things. I'm really glad now that Brian is just covering one.
3: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's why I wanted to cover the other two. You notice like the third one or the fourth one, idealism. You don't even get get nothing on this one. Um, You know, and then there's a couple other things about where like... The the relationship between the new covenant and the old covenant, which is the old covenant, is the relationship with the Jews and God, and whether that is superseded by Christianity. So you have two divisions in that, which is supersessionism and covenant theology. And if you want to find out what that is, you can look it up on Wikipedia. because I'm not going to go. Into that. <laughs> Luke, how yeah. the hell you been? Fantastic. (laughs) Mark it down, Rob. You're not recording yet. Yes, we are recording. We've been recording. I didn't know that.
4: (laughs) I thought you guys were talking to each other.
3: No, no, we're not. We're recording a show. (laughs) Damn it. How you been, Luke? Great. Just great. (laughs) That's one of the best moments ever, right there. <laughs> Maybe we should clip that part off with the with the F word included for the Patreons to download. <laughs> we should do an, a Patreon only all Luke episode. Yeah.
4: Oh boy, I, I can. Hurl. I have
3: a, I have old outtakes of Luke on the computer on the, on the computer at home from like 2014. I mean, just talking about some real nasty yeah, stuff. I can
4: make some terrible comments. <laughs>
3: Uh, you got some really nasty stories. I've I've got recorded that I can put up. On the, put it, we can put up on the Patreon. We probably lose all our Patreons, but yeah, probably. But whatever. All right, guys, we're gonna take a break here. Uh, now that Luke's here, we're gonna take a break. But uh, Rob, tell everybody about Patreon and uh, what they can, how they can uh, get on it and and help us out. Yeah,
4: check out our growing community at patreoncom conspiranormal. Uh, there's different tiers of subscriptions. We post bonus episodes, possibly some Luke outtakes, oh yeah. uh, <laughs> wallpapers. There's just there's a uh, you can just join into on the discussions on there. Uh, t-shirts we have printed and ready to go. Yes, uh, some of those are in the mail for some of you already. And yeah, check it out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, guys, we we're, we're about like what we're around forty five dollars on the Patreon. Yeah, we're so it costs us it cost me around 50 to host this on Potomatic. It costs about $16 to for our website. So um we just need a little bit more and this thing will be like pretty much self-sustaining uh for us each month. So that's like if as long as it's like a net zero, you know, we'd love we'd love more money. We'd love everybody's money, but you know, as long as it's a net zero, you know, that would that would be good.
4: Yeah, and thanks to all of you who are already subscribing.
3: Absolutely. All right, guys, we're going to go to break and we will be right back with Brian Gadalla on Conspiracy Normal.
5: What if I were to tell you that the forms are not the facts? And what if I were to ask you the shape of water? Water is in a state of constant flow and flux, a paradox of weakness and strength. My name is Aaron David. And I am host of Charm the Water, a weekly podcast centering on the occult and mysticism based in Asheville, North Carolina. You can find us at charmthewater.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite pod feeder. Come holler.
3: Okay, we're back. And now it is the next show. Much later in the evening,
4: minus but, Luke.
3: Much later in the evening, minus Luke. Luke did have to leave. We wanted to announce that. And that's through the joys of, of his mythical creature, time travel <laughs> yeah. abilities, as we mentioned before. He just appears and vanishes. Yes, yes. That's, that's what he does. That's what he does. But we did technically have two shows in a row with Luke. So it is an amazing thing. And another amazing thing is we have Brian Gadawa with us. Brian, um, it is your third time on Conspiranormal. You have now won the Conspiranormal Smoking Jacket. Congratulations. <laughs> You're right up there with Dr. Heiser and uh, a few other notables.
2: Conspiranormal.
3: Normal, normal. <laughs> How you doing, Brian? Good, man. You know, Ready? you had contacted me about coming back on the show um i had heard an interview that you had did with view from the bunker and it's funny because i'll usually be like i need to call i need to send brian an email try to get it back on the show and then you will send me an email it's just kind of weird how that happens um it's very synchronistic i guess you could say um it's a conspiracy it is a conspiracy (laughs) it is but we're going to talk about Well, kind of like two books that you put out, and that one of those is End Times, which is a nonfiction explanation of kind of how you view biblical prophecy.
2: End Times Bible Prophecy is the full title.
3: Yes, End Times Bible Prophecy. And then the second one is the Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And I believe that book is called Tyrant, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And, of course, that's dealing with the Emperor Nero, which I'm sure we will touch on. But uh, you have, I would say, a differing point of view than most, I want to say, evangelical Christians, even though, you know, that's kind of a lack of a better term thing.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, Because we talked about this for 30 minutes in our intro part, and I skipped preterism. I didn't say really much about it because, honestly— First of all, there's a whole bunch you can say about futurism because it's divided Mm -hmm. into about five or six different categories um, and subcategories. But I kind of wanted to, we want to talk about preterism with you in the interview. So what I kind of want to start with is kind of your personal journey and what did you kind of believe previously about biblical prophecy Mm-hmm. And what you know? What kind of began to change your mind about futurism? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good question. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book End
2: Times Bible Prophecy was to sort of tell that story, but also to provide a um, you know a biblical exegetical foundation for the fiction that we'll talk about later in uh, Chronicles of the Apocalypse. Because I found that you know a lot of my readers just love to re- read my research as well as the fiction. So, but I, but you know what. It was really important for me to to write the book because um, it helped me to sort of get down that that testimony. Because, in fact, um, I was, you know. I became a Christian uh, boy, so we're talking nineteen seventy nine so I'm a pretty old one. <laughs> and uh, so you know, Christian in the eighties, uh, that that's kind of the high end, the end of the height of the uh, you know the Jesus movement, which of course, out in California, that would be Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, all those guys, yep. as well mm-hmm. as. You know Hal Lindsey and um, what would become that, or what had become by that point. You know Hal Lindsey's book, "Late Great Planet Earth," came out, I think seventy four or something like that. And and, um, and I don't it know just if you came. know
3: this, but I go to a Calvary Chapel. Oh, okay. Here, yeah, cool. here and around okay. Nashville. hmm
2: mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah. So anyway, I, I. I, I I became a Christian, I was a typical evangelical Billy Graham type Christian campus crusade for Christ, and because I say all that because uh, you know, I pretty much grew in my faith when I went to college, and that's when it kind of happened for me and and I exploded and i I loved apologetics, got into all that kind of stuff. But I also had read the book. Ah, uh, you know, Lake Great Planet Earth. So it was very it, it, Hal Lindsey's teaching on the end times. You know, really affected me, and you know, and it really gave you a, a, an excitement. You know, because of course at that time he was saying, you know, we're in the we're in the end day in the end of days, and in fact, even you know, he basically believed Christ was going to come back by 1988, and and mm, so it's yeah. like we're talking it's eighty, right? And because you know. Israel became a nation in 1948, a uh, generation would happen before all these things would take place, right? So he, that that what became very famous was I was living in that time period, and it was an exciting sense because it's like, wow, you know, this vindicates us, this makes me feel like, yeah, you know, these things are happening in the news, everything, you know, Russia's moving on here and there, and it fits Ezekiel and all this stuff. And and it really, but it, there was also, it, at that time period, there was a sense of, you know, I, I think it was very rooted also in the gospel in the sense of, you know, Christ is coming back, judgment on the earth. Are you ready to face your maker? You know? And, and I think that there was, at least for me that it, it you know, in all honesty, it really was connected with, look, this is an oppor- I loved sharing the gospel with people. I love to talk to be about Jesus Christ. And this is just one more way to make it, more real, because like a lot of people, you talk to them like, you know, hey, you know, uh, what do you believe in, and are you ready to stand before God when you die? And they're just like, Pff, you know, especially young people, right? They just don't think about those things. But if you're like, hey, you know, look at all the events going on, we might be in the end of days, and you know, are you ready to face that? You know, it's just it, it was just very helpful in in, in many ways, and it was very popular. And as, as a matter of fact. Um, where you know everyone knows about Left Behind, which came later in the '90s. Um, and of course, right. Left Behind was the huge, huge series that I think you know, kind of, you know, t- in a way that the Hal Lindsey generation was kind of dying out because, of course, when 1988 came and went, and Jesus didn't come back. You know, he had the new the new version of that, and um, but it was kind of the same beliefs. It's just updated for the present, you know. But, But but you know that was such a huge hit, and it was also unique because it was fiction, and so they were able to at least really paint a cool you know fascinating picture that made a lot of Christians excited and interesting. And um, so I I was I was raised in the in the Hal Lindsey generation, which I think in some ways was sort of the you know the. What I what I would say is actually it was bigger than Left Behind because Left Behind sold sold like I don't know what sixty million or something like that, but that was like twelve or more fourteen books or something, right?
3: One yeah, se- yeah, it was a s- yeah. whole series. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, but and over you know whatever, how many years did they take to write that thing? A decade. But Hal Lindsey's Lake Replant Earth was one book and it sold like over thirty million all by itself, right? So mm-hmm. in a way that was much bigger than left behind and people just don't know. Cause it's so long ago. Right. So anyway, you know, that's kind of what I was raised on. And, 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 um, you know, I, I also at the time, by the way, I, I listened to all the Jesus music, Larry Norman, uh, Randy Stonehill, Keith Green, the, the granddaddies of rock, Christian rock and roll. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you know, I, I've been going through it, and as a matter of fact, I, I I actually remember in college hearing for the first time about this preterist notion that hey, you know, there's this thing called preterism. It believes that you know a lot of these these uh, you know the end times and stuff was all you know the prophecies were already fulfilled in the past. And of course, my you know my initial reaction was heresy. I mean, what Jesus already came? What does that mean? You know, and the thing was. In, in all that studying all my Bible – now, again, this is over 30 years ago. Things are different now because of the influence of proterism. I think a lot more futurist people are more aware of it. But in that day and age, nobody was taught. Nobody even knew about it. And and you're only taught one view, and you assume, well, this is the Bible view, so anything else is her- heretical. And I what they didn't teach me was – These Bible teachers, they didn't teach me that, yeah, this is our belief, but our belief is called futurism, which means it believes that most of the end times Bible prophecies are in the future, in our future in particular. Yeah, to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and, and as a matter of fact, it's dispensationalism, which is one branch of premillennialism, right? And so I wasn't really taught those. and, and, And the fact that there are multiple views within orthodox Christianity, not heretics, uh, millennialism, premillennialism, historic premillennialism, dispensationalism, and as a matter of fact, preterism, which also was one of the views that was taught within uh, the Orthodox Christian camp, you know. And um, now there, there is, you know, uh, some would argue. Uh, well, first let me give a definition. Then, Preter- but what is preterism? Right. So preterism right. is a Latin word. That basically means the past, preterism, the past. And it, it, it's a reference to the fact that end times or last days prophecies have been all fulfilled or mostly fulfilled in the past. Now, as a matter of fact, as all branches have extremists in them, there are different branches within preterism. One branch believes that literally everything about the end times Including the return of Christ, the physical return of Christ, and the resurrection and the judgment have occurred in the past. That's called full preterism. and there are many I, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I'm at this point, but I know that within uh, you know uh, the preterist camp there are many who would call that heretical because it really does tend to deny All the, uh, or not all the, but some of the key elements that happen to be in all of the Christian creeds in history, you know, and pretty much all the denominations sort of agree on that now i realize that that doesn't determine truth but that does determine whether or not you you say something is heretical because it's outside of the 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 pale of orthodoxy as we say some would say that i don't know that i'm prepared to say that yet but um then there's partial preterism which basically says look there is still a future second return or a return of christ there is a future uh physical resurrection that has yet to occur and there is a final judgment, but th- that's about it. And as a matter of fact, ironically, yet many of the passages that people do feel are referring to that those things actually do not, and that they were uh, fulfilled in the past. So that's that's the camp that I kind of um, started to 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 read about and learn more about. And um, as you know, ironically, uh, it was through uh, reformed teachers now. Reformed guys, if you know anything about Reformed theologians, they, you know, look, I know there's the whole debate of Calvinism, Arminianism, all that kind of stuff, but I mean, if you look at it objectively, Reformed guys are about the most stringent about being uh orthodox in their in their uh theology of anybody, but yet here these people were uh and they're teaching the partial preterism, so that challenged my belief that oh, this is heretical. I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, these guys that I've heard of, and their names now might be a little bit more familiar: uh, Ken Gentry, Gary Demar, Greg Bonson, who's who died. Um, and then in later years, R.C. Sproul uh, was also a partial preterist, and so it it challenged my my mindset, you know, and made me go, well, you know, you you owe it to yourself to at least look at these other viewpoints. And and I, when I started to looking to other viewpoints I actually became an amillennialist, which is you know there's a variety there but that basically is is more of an idealistic view of uh, end times which is basically you know revelation uh, is can be about history and the future but a lot of it isn't and it's mostly um, you know, symbolic or representational of periods in history, not specific historical events, but more, more like truly symbolic, you know, like for instance, oh, you know, the, the, the seven churches in, in Revelation are not literal churches. It's about periods in history. So we're in the, now
3: in the Laodicean church age, that kind of. Yeah. This, I think is more like the historicist kind of.
2: Yeah, yeah, point, and I, right. I may not have them all down pat myself. So, um, yeah. but nevertheless, you know, I'd I'd studied some amillennialism, and a lot of it made sense. It was a lot of fascinating, interesting stuff to me.
3: Well, one point and I want I, to make is the amillennialist is what we what we just read, because it said that most, like a good percentage of Christians would actually be this, because you have the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, Calvinists, and Lutherans all mm-hmm. consider themselves amillennialists.
2: Very good point. Very good yeah. point. Excellent. Yes. No, very true. Um, however, uh, how does that play out and, and how does that really apply? And which is why we have to be very, very careful. One of my one of the lessons I've learned over all these years as I've changed my viewpoints, and and you know, shortly after that I studied more and I became a post millennialist and preterist. So I've been all the viewpoints and I've studied them all at one point or another. Uh, um I don't I haven't necessarily kept up with all of them, but I was I went through them all. And, um, but one of the things I've learned that we all have to, to, to take, including myself now, even though I now think, okay, I've rested into the final, the best, truly the best position is that there, you know, if you have any kind of humility before God, you have to be open to the fact that you might be wrong about your theology. And what you think the Bible is saying may not be what the Bible is saying. It may be saying something else. And, and the, the thing that I got, that I was angry at for for the Bible, the world that I was in, again, 35 years ago or more, um, was that they taught as if there's only one way of seeing Bible prophecy, and that was our way. And the other ways just were – they dis- dismissed them as if they were illegitimate. But in so doing, that made me angry because when I started studying the very things that they ignored, which are focused um, heavily around the event – of A.D. 70, where the Roman armies came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple with under the armies of Titus, and it was under the Jewish revolt, the war that occurred right after the Book of Acts, basically, right? This was an event and a time period and a significant historical event for both Judaism and Christianity, yet right. I wasn't taught anything about that. And so my interest was actually historical. I was like, this is fascinating. And the only guys teaching it were preterists, right? And then they were tying in and saying, well, yeah, we'll see how this fulfills the biblical prophecies that, you know, modern day people think that has to do with our future. But it's like, no, they were talking about their immediate future and most all of it occurred. And so um, that was the – that's what started me really looking into. It. It's like, wow, there's some real historical, powerful things going on here. And couple that with over the years, over the decades now, you know – I just kept seeing these views as being proven wrong over and over and over and over again. And I, you know, I, I've been wrong too, so I'm not, you know, not going to sit there and, and – it it's not an attack. It's just something that makes you go, look. And now, of course, I'm into over 30 years and all the futurist beliefs just keep being wrong. And they keep saying, oh, well, that wasn't what it is now. You know, it was Russia then. There was nothing about Islam 30 years ago. Now it's all Islam. And, and you know, I've seen Ezekiel 38, 39 be fulfilled 20, 30 different times in different <laughs> ways. And, you know, uh, but look, no matter, and, and look, I have my own viewpoint about those. and But I may be wrong. And that's, I think all I'm trying to say is that it should force us to all be humble about. Yeah, have a have a view. Go ahead and strongly believe in it. Obviously, you know, because you want to follow the truth. But I've in the in those decades and in my own experience, I've just seen a lot of division and splitting up in, in the church over these beliefs because it's so. Some of them hold their beliefs so obsessively that when they discover yours is different, you they just can't fellowship with you. you know and these are the kind of things that. I had to struggle with you know, as I was going through various viewpoints and and now I'm at the point where, look, I do have a very strong strong view about it, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to say look i'm I'm open to I know there are holes in my view because I know all the holes in all the views, and there's holes in all of them <laughs> sure. you can't ever have it perfectly, and I really am you know i'm so i I love listening to some of the futurists who talk about. You know the transhumanism and the mark of the beast, because I may disagree with their interpretation of how they think of the mark of the beast, but I certainly think they're on the cutting edge of exposing the evil that is being, you know, accomplished in this world. Whether it's the you know pursuit of one world, global religion, etc., you don't have to. <coughs> Excuse me, you don't have to believe that's the Antichrist, to believe that it's evil, right? So you you didn't have to believe Hitler you didn't have to believe Hitler was the Antichrist to fight him. So, you
3: know (laughs) just a really bad guy. I mean Yeah, uh, exactly.
2: So and I so I do believe there are still tyrants there. I do believe that um man is b- basically sinful and therefore we have cycles in history that tend towards um rise and falls and destruction and and ev- you know. So so I can I can unite with my futurists on uh kvetching and talking about how evil things <laughs> can get. Um but nevertheless, I I guess, you know, to, to, to bring this, this particular rambling to an end. Um, yeah, those are the things that really started challenging me, challenging me to reconsider is learning about this historical event and seeing how it does connect with so many Bible prophecies in the, in the New Testament, this event of AD 70, and seeing how important it is spiritually. And also, you know, recognizing, you know, you, the one challenge I want to give to futurists is, yes, I realize that just because you're wrong in the future— that doesn't mean i'm sorry just because you've been wrong in the past doesn't mean you're wrong now in the future technically logically that's true but my pleading with people is but consider this if it's been wrong over and over and over again maybe it maybe you should re- reconsider some other systems or reconsider maybe it's it's more than just particular interpretations are wrong maybe there's something wrong with the system at least just consider that you know that's that's all i'm saying yeah. um but in the course of it you know let's try to be humble and have some great rigorous discussions but but for god's sake literally for god's sake um we need to really seek to maintain fellowship with with each other because it, we're dividing over this stuff it's it's pretty bad you know and i mean sometimes sometimes you know i don't know i mean maybe sometimes there are situations where someone is so extreme that you really have to, you can't always, uh, you know, include them in on a conference or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Um, you know, like, I don't know, but, uh, I'm just trying to be open here and say, you know, yeah, of course there are going to be some times where some people are wacky and wackos and conspiracy theories are, are, you know, really dangerous in many ways, in my, in my opinion, you know, but, um, so yeah, that's kind of the big picture, you know, of of how how I started to to change my mindset. But I I think that there's also the uh, the the theological side, which is um, or well, I don't know. Um, I, again, as time has gone on, I I have seen now in in recent years there has been a rise of preterism, and I actually think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know one of the key linchpins of the typical, you know, dispensational futurist viewpoint in particular, which has been very, very big and influential, uh, left behind, etc. Uh, the linchpins is, the, you know, Israel, the Israel thing, and, and when Israel becomes a nation and all this kind of stuff, and uh, they, they've linked it to that. But the problem is, is the further and further, the more ge- – we're now up to like two generations away from Israel becoming a nation, it becomes more and more difficult to hold on to some of those key – Linchpins of interpretation in Bible prophecy, and it's making pe- people Christians reconsider other viewpoints. And I think that's one of the reasons why preterism has had a rise in interest. But also, more uh, respectable, known theologians are accepting it. Uh, whether it's R.C. Sproul or uh, Hank Hanegraaff, in, in recent years, the Bible Answer Man, the big apologetics guy, you know, and um, and and others who have. Have really you know made themselves open to this and started uh, teaching it, and so in other words, Christians are starting to realize, oh you know y- you know you're not a heretic if you believe it. there are strong theological men of God who hold to it as well as through history and um yeah, so because I think in one in one way, I feel like there's been a lot of slander about preterism, stuff that I've read about people criticizing it, honest to God, look, I mean this the The critiques that I've read, as I've read them, or what have you, they almost none of them almost none of them portrayed accurately. And I'm not going to accuse them of being uh, deliberately malicious, but I'm amazed at how people don't really know what it is, and they're just getting their ideas from other people who are being critical, getting their ideas from other people, and um, this is not a good thing. You need to, you know, uh, you need to to read opposing viewpoints. And, and and listen to debates from the best of, not just get the critiques of your favorite teacher of another viewpoint, because you'd be amazed at how much they are, in, you know, how much they, they don't have it right, you know?
3: Yeah, I'm all for so, that. Absolutely. I mean, you should have – we should have be able to discuss these ideas and not, you know, pull the swords out on each other. I mean, honestly. Yeah. I mean, for truly. Um I want to get into the meat of this, and you start off with talking about the, like, how literalism kind of corrupts biblical prophecy, and yeah. you go into the use of figurative language and hyperbole, and I mean, there's several things here, you know, the use of the phrase day of the Lord, all the nations, all these kind of things that make us think that this is some kind of big catastrophe. Yeah, but this is actually, as you say, that this is actually figurative language.
2: Yeah, you know, my start. First of all, you know, I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm a writer. Uh, I love poetry. I love the art of the Bible. <clears throat> so I am definitely very uh, sensitive and um, fascinated with that. And as a matter of fact, it's it, it was it was men like um, actually long before. Uh, Heiser, but Heiser was very influential as well because Heiser's point is we need to understand the biblical text within the context of the original re- writers and readers, not impose our own. And it's amazing how quickly we impose our own when we assume. When we just read the text and we don't know what's behind it, we don't know the historical background, we don't know things like that. And this comes from the modern fundamentalist bias that you know believes a false thing about scripture that says, <clears throat> God's word is so, is so simple, even a child can understand it. Well, there's a sense in which, yeah, of course, that's true. A child can understand, believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. But that's not actually true about the text. And in fact, when you, if you approach the text that way, you're going to actually misinterpret it, and um, and that's happened a lot with the fundamentalist uh, approach to it, and and I think the heart of that is this quote: what we call literalism, and that is because we live in a post-scientific modern era, uh, we are more inclined to. Yes, we understand poetry. Yes, we understand uh, literary metaphors and stuff like that, but for some reason, the you know um, I think the modern evangelical worldview has crafted – I think it it, it it crafted a literalism bias because it was seeking to defend the liberals back in the turn of the century. The liberals were saying the Bible is just a bunch of myths and fairy tales, right? And and uh, they didn't – none of it – You know, they didn't mean any of it, right? And so the, the Christians tried to stand against it and say, no, no, it's all true. It's not all myths. It's all true and unfortunately they swing to the other false extreme which is that's not true that it's all not true it's not true that it's all figurative or that it's all uh, i'm getting it's the 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 liberals assume the same thing that the that the fundamentalists were assuming that it's it's all meant to be literal and in so doing we've kind of cr- crafted a corruption into evangelicalism that assumes literalism unless you can prove figurative or unless you could prove poetic but when you when you study the ancient Hebrew world and mindset and their literature not just the bible but all their literature to understand their worldview and how they thought you realize that two things one is they are much more poetic than we are and two their language is so removed from us by thousands of years that when they're using terms and phrases they mean something different than what we might mean by them. And so my the first half of the book, I sought to write about these things in the Old Testament in a way that any particular uh, end times viewpoint can agree with me. In other words, I like – look, later on I'm going to tell you – try to persuade you about my view of the end times. But first, let's just get some basics down and how do you, how do you interpret scripture in general. And my main argument is literalism that – that bias that most evangelicals come to the text with is actually not the most biblical, um, and so it's. I'm not saying it's never true. Obviously, yes, there is literal history that is true, but the way they write about history. Let me give you an example. You know, so so like you mentioned, uh, you know, the Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a is right. one of those classic um, cases where uh, there's a lot of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, a lot of references to uh the day of the lord and let me see if i can find some of them myself here. yeah we
3: were talking about in the intro we were talking about the the pre wrath position i think that that has to do with the day of the lord right that's centered around that idea
2: yes yeah. yes Let's see oh there it is sorry i was trying to find my little list yeah so now there's the day of the lord comes up in a lot of passages Zephaniah, joel isaiah right and the, of course you read these descriptions and um and, and, and they're fantastic, right? You know, Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is near, hastening fast, a day of wrath, distress and anguish, clouds and thick darkness, you know, God, you know, all the earth shall be consumed and all this kind of stuff. And blow a trumpet in Zion. Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce. And, you know, you read this stuff and and basically it sounds like it's the end of the world type stuff, you know. And so we we tend to craft this approach to that oh yeah all these prophets are sort of making these vague uh historical references to the to the future at the the end of time the judgment the end of the world and and it's it's called the day of the lord that sounds right right day of the lord that's the day of the lord comes back the day jesus returns or you know whatever and it's and because it's so excessive like it says you know the stars the sun moon will will cease Uh, their light, or in some places it says they will turn to blood, the stars will fall from the sky, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All of them use this kind of language. And so we tend to start to create this picture of, yeah, that's talking about the end of the world, and they're all, all the prophets were talking about that event, and they're all hinting about the future. But when you study the history of those chapters and passages, actual Bible scholarship, you find, no, no, those are actually, a lot of them are references to historical events that occurred in that time period. You know, so yeah. whether it's, you know, Isaiah, or, you know, talking about the, the, the fall of Egypt uh, or the, the God's going dis- to actually God's going to come in and destroy Israel and put them into exile. And then and then God's going to judge Babylon. Well, what you find out is that's what the day of the Lord, the Lord, the day of the Lord is actually a generic term that is used of multiple local judgments anytime time God judges a nation or even just a city or a people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He says it's the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord for Assyria is when God judges them after he uses Assyria to judge Israel. The day of the Lord for Babylon is coming. Even the day of the Lord is coming for Judah and Israel. And that was in reference to the Babylonian exile. So actually the day of the Lord is not necessarily a reference to the end of the world but it's just a it's a it's a it's a poetic description of any time God comes and judges and then when you look closer into the poetry of those passages you see you know um so when you see things like again this is all stuff that I think any viewpoint can agree with me on this and you can still even maintain your viewpoint about uh the end times um but I, I think it just might it might alter it, but you, you can still maintain it. So, for instance, when it talks about things like uh, the sun, moon, and stars, you know, and again, these are all things that are are uh, occurring in the Old Testament. I'm trying to find the some of the Bible verses on that. It's a classic sun, moon, and stars, right? Okay, so collapsing universe image throughout the Old Testament. When God came and destroyed the first temple in 587 uh, BC. Jeremiah 4 talks about, he says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was formless and void, and the heavens and they had no light. The mountains were quaking, the hills back and forth. It says the whole land is a desolation. Um, The the heavens above will be dark, right? Uh, In Zephaniah, the same thing. in, In 622 BC, when God judges Judah, he uses the same language and talks about, um, everything will be wiped off from the face of the earth. Um, when Babylon, when God uh, destroys Babylon in Isaiah, he says, the moon will not shed its light. Thus will I punish the world for thee. the sun will be dark. The stars in heaven and their constellations will not, will not flash forth their light. So you get this same language in passages that are talking about local destructions of nations or cities and God is using this language that clearly did not happen physically because if all the stars fell from the sky and if the sun, if the sun didn't give its light, it would have gone cold and the universe would have frozen up, you know, and, 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 and it, it, and it says, I, God says, I am coming on the clouds. I am coming on the clouds. So this, this phraseology is used. So did God literally come physically on the clouds surfing, like on a surfboard or something? No, it's, it's a it's an ancient way of talking about every time um, a nation is judged and the rulers or the authorities, both heavenly and earthly. By the way, that's a whole other topic. That's the Heiser stuff, right? Um, but basically, when God judges or when a na- another nation judges a nation, they use this language to describe the fall of earthly and uh, heavenly powers and authority. So I- in other words, it's like the government, the rule of mankind is being changed. It's And it's not too different from the way we talk today, right? I mean, we, we say things like, you know, the whole world has is, is turned upside down, you know? Sure, right. That kind of mm-hmm. a stuff. So this is poetry. All I'm saying is I go through this whole first half of the book just going over these actual Old Testament examples that we know did not happen physically. the sky did not roll up like a scroll, but it said that it did. therefore, it must be a poetic phrase describing judgment, the fall of earthly rulers, the change of government and powers, right, as well as God's generic judgment upon those cities. So I go through that poetic language and just sort of uh, uh, you know, analyze it and show how, what this means. And of course, the next step becomes. That same language is used in the New Testament, so then I, then I step into the next journey uh, of, of, of how, how that applies, and once you sort of you know once you can sort of acknowledge that wow, you know there's a lot of poetic descriptions of even historical events in the Jewish mindset and the Jewish worldview, it makes it a little easier and a little bit a little bit easier to understand when the New Testament uses the same exact language. So in, so, here's my argument is, what I think that, uh, and this is what I what I feel like I came to realize myself was, we come to the text and, and you know, classic text of, you know, the end times, last days is Matthew 24, where Jesus gives the Olivet
3: Discourse. And yeah, we can talk about that. That's where I was going next, actually. Yeah, I was going to talk about that.
2: Mm-hmm. But you just, you know, when, when we start to read these things, our initial reaction is to read it through what we know. So when it talks about things like, "Oh, look at it," it says, "Oh, Jesus is coming on the clouds, and the mountains will rumble, and and the you know the sun, moon, and stars will go dark." And the you know because we are modern scientific modern people, we tend to read things technically and physically, and yet they didn't have modern science back then. So they always used cosmic astronomical language as metaphors for spiritual or uh, governmental or, 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 or what shall we say, national or military sort of things, you know. So, so they use astronomical languages, as metaphors all the time. We come at it with a well, with this physics mindset, so we automatically sort of read that as literal. And my my question is, okay, do we read the text through our own perspe- perspective, or do we read the text through? through the eyes of the ancient Jew who wrote it. So the writer, you know, Jesus who preached it, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who recorded it, as well as John who wrote Revelation, you know, vision from Jesus, but still, he wrote it, and they are steeped in Old Testament symbols that have precedent. You can find literally everything in Revelation, as well as Matthew 24, there is a precedent in the Old Testament. Testament. So wouldn't it make sense as Christians for us to go, well, if he's using language that the Old Testament prophets used, let's see what they meant by it, and maybe we can see a, 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 a better understanding of how they meant it rather than just reading it out of context and saying, oh, look, the sun will be dark and the, moon will, the stars will fall. Well, that must be meteorites because that's how I think, you know? And so that, that's the challenge that I would give to people that when you start to do that, you look back, then you start to it be, you start to see these prophecies in a different light that is not so modern. And that's what leads us to Matthew 24.
3: Yeah. Well, let's Yeah, I want to get to the, the Olivet Discourse, the Mount, I guess, as it's sometimes, so the Mount Olivet Discourse, which we have a cemetery here in Nashville called Mount Olivet, by the way. Uh <laughs> So, what does that describe, and what future events is it talking about, and also the use of the where Jesus says, "This generation." Yes.
2: Now that I would actually say, I write about this in my book that um, that little phrase when Jesus says, "All these things shall happen to this generation," was something that always it was like a stone in my shoe. You know, it always bugged me because it, it seems so clear. What he, who he was talking to, namely the generation of people he was talking to. He said, this generation I'm talking to, right, on the surface. But because of the futurist bias, you know, I was giving all these explanations. Well, he doesn't really mean this generation. He actually means the generation that would see these signs, which hasn't happened yet. Or he's really saying this generation of Jews. In other words, the Jewish race won't pass away before all these things happen.
3: The best one that I've heard, Brian, the best one. Is that the Apostle John is immortal, and when he dies, whenever that's supposed to be, is when Christ will come back. Because (laughs) that because John is the last one of that generation, obviously. Yeah. And once he dies, yeah, that's when it happens. That's 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 my favorite. Now, okay, so now here's my challenge: is okay. Have you heard that one?
2: I, I actually haven't. I, okay. I, in fact, I was just on a, a a podcast a couple weeks ago about someone who did believe that, you know, yeah. uh, which, by the way, that would be a cool premise for a fictional novel. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's 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 amazing. But, um, yeah, so when we, you know so we get to Matthew 24 and that's the big thing because that's Jesus himself talking about the signs of the end of the age. Right. And, and this is, you know, this has been, you know, not even getting into the book of Revelation because that's way more complex. You know, this was more simpler for me to approach it. But anyway, but it always, it still always, had, it bothered me, you know, and then when I, I started reading these other viewpoints and they started explaining the fact that, you know, this, you know, when Jesus says, and in, in, in Matthew 23, 36, 36, he's talking about – first of all, he's getting off this long discourse about you guys, you, you Jewish leaders are guilty of the blood of all the martyrs, Jewish martyrs of history. Why? Because they killed the prophets. You are their, their offspring. You are going to kill Messiah. That's basically with the context of what he's teaching. So you are the most guilty of all. And then he says, "Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." And so the context is clearly this generation that is that is going to reject Christ, the Messiah and kill the Messiah, you know. And that's the ultimate sin of, of all, right? So that's the you know talk about being literal. If you want to just be literal, that's the the literal uh, you know understanding of the text. Um, but of course, that can't be because he said. I mean, that can't be if you have a futurist interpretation so you have to kind of spin things a little bit differently you know and of course we all we all have here's the problem when we read prophecy and by the way this is my argument my argument is not that it's not literal it's all figurative my my argument is it's not all literal and it's not all figurative the problem is it's a mixture of figurative and literal because that's how they spoke, and therefore we have to study to show ourselves approved. We have to be serious Bible students and learn to figure out, to discern, well, what's the poetic side and figurative, and what's the, what's the historical reality? And and that's the problem. People want things in a simple, easy, bam, bam, bam. It's Obviously, it's all literal. It's all literal, unless it's obviously not. Well— the problem is, is what is obvious to a modern 21st century American is not obvious to an ancient Jew. Sorry, they're opposites in many in many ways. Yeah. So if you want to say uh, what you know, we must read it in a way that 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 it, it is uh, what is obviously literal and obviously figurative. No such thing. Uh, but if you are going to do that, you you have to do it. If you want to be true to the biblical text, you have to do it in the mindset of an ancient Jew, not a modern American. But anyway. So nevertheless, you know these guys start pointing out that, well, you know, he, Matthew 23 and 24 is not the only place that he says all these things will come upon this generation. First of all, he says all these things will come upon this generation. Then he lists a bunch of things, right? Abomination of desolation, great tribulation, coming on the clouds. And then he says it again. Truly, I say to you, at the end of chapter twenty-four, he says this, He repeats himself. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, just in case any futurist would might have a different view. He's reminding us. I'm telling you, all these things between these two phrases, everything's going to take place within before this generation passes away. And so, what does this generation mean? And then, you know, these other teachers that I started reading, you know, pointed out the The fact that was very this was very key in changing this is what came to to change my mind in the text. If you, what does Jesus mean when he says this generation? Is he's ta- is it means the generation he's talking to? Or he's talking about some other generation. First of all, if he would if he were referring to a future generation, not his own, he would have said that generation. And there are plenty of examples in Scripture where that occurs, tr- that generation. But everywhere in the Gospels. Where Jesus says this generation, not just in Matthew 23 and 24, but there are multiple places. Look them up for yourself. I can. We can talk about them, but every place, he, he, he he's literally means, and, and, and I mean, everybody would acknowledge, he means, he always means the generation to whom he is speaking. Because here's the other cool irony that I didn't even know. In the Gospels… Wherever he uses the phrase this generation, it's always in the context of this generation is rejecting Messiah, therefore this generation will be judged. And that's what was a linchpin for me that started making me go, oh, why would it be any different in Matthew 24? Because it's the same thing. You know, like, let me give you an example. And then this would be things, again, that I would say any eschatological viewpoint would agree with me. Um, he goes uh, uh matthew matthew eleven same same gospel matthew eleven sixteen, but to what shall I compare this generation who says John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon, son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, he's gluttonous and a drunkard, and so Jesus is saying, this generation is rejecting the Messiah, and they're 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 fools for doing so later on in matthew twelve forty one he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. And what? You're rejecting him. You, you, the generation that, re- that rejects and crucifies Messiah will be judged greater. And and there's multiple pl- cases where where he says the same thing. He's this generation. So the you know, the generic context that is always used in the Gospels. It. It really means the generation to whom he's speaking, and and that was where it started to change my mind. Why? Because of this, you can sit, you can go through Matthew twenty four and say, okay, I can see some of these things might have happened in the first century, right? Like for instance, Jesus said, some will come, false prophets. Um, in fact, he tells them, you will, you will be. Uh, where does he say in Matthew twenty four? You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, right? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. They will drive you, you know, deliver you up to tribulation. That happened to the first century too, um, but of course, you know, futurists will say, but it still has to happen in the future. But as you go through each of these things, you 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 have to be guided. In my my opinion, we must. The number one hermeneutical principle is we must include historical other biblical sources in in terms of when we seek to understand the Bible. But the first rule is let scripture interpret scripture. So the first thing you look at is what does, does the scripture give you a context that should guide you in your interpretation? My argument is that it does. And it's this phrase, um, all these things, all these things will come upon this generation. He says it in the beginning of chapter 24 or at the end of chapter 23. And he says it again at the end of 24, which means Everything within those parentheses, if you're going to interpret it, you have to interpret it as hap- as coming upon this generation before that generation passes away, and so therefore, um, when I as a as a typical Christian would look and say, "But but I look in it and it says, you know, it says the the uh, uh, the Son of Man coming on the clouds." Well, that obviously hasn't happened, so it can't mean this generation. No, that is prioritizing your cultural bias over the text. What you have to say is, well, if Jesus says everything in this passage you have to interpret as, as occurring before this generation has died out, then I'm going to have to interpret it that way to be consistent with his hermeneutic. That's my argument of how I approach the text first. True. Now, I've, I've understood all of it as being in the future, but if I come at it w- w- from that context, then I, I would say that should – should help you. And then secondly, uh, what I always said, al- already said, which was, but guess what, folks? You don't have to make things up. Because the stars falling from heaven, you don't have to say, well, I'll, I'll just, I just have to arbitrary, arbitrarily interpret stars falling from heaven as, as uh, happening in the first century because Jesus said so, even though I don't think it. Well, look, if you go back in the Old Testament, you find they already used that language and we already found out that it's a poetic form that describes the fall of ruling authorities and powers. And so there's already precedent is what I'm saying. We're not, you don't have to make things up. There's already a precedent. So, I, I mean, I, I should stop and let you uh,
3: interject.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> or, well, or yeah, I mean, it, just, it, it, it does make sense to me that if he says this generation, then he means this generation. So what we're getting at, is that we're talking about the destruction of the temple. Yes. And the destruction of the temple by the Romans as a punishment. And so this yes. fits back into the whole idea of the day of the Lord. In other words, he's using the Romans the same way that he used the Babylonians or the Assyrians. or
2: Exactly. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple... And Jerusalem in 587 BC, God called it the day of the Lord, and what was he doing? He was judging Israel for rejecting his prophets. And guess what? In AD 70, because they rejected Messiah, Jesus, um, the ultimate prophet, right? God's going to do the same thing again. He's going to destroy the city and the temple, only this time, it's there's much more to it than that. But that was the other thing that sort of you know blew my mind is I, if you know if you go back to Matthew 23 and 24, remember this, Matthew 24 is not an isolated passage. It, the chapter markers are arbitrary; they were added in the medieval a- age. So there are no chapters in the original uh, gospel. Right. So it's one flowing, it's one flowing monologue, and the context is. Jesus, you know, look back in the other chapters, Jesus is sparring with the scribes and they're judging him. And finally in Matthew 23, he lays it on him. He's just saying, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, all this stuff, whitewashed tombs. And he says, you, you know, you killed the prophets. You said you would, you're not like your fathers, but you are. And Matthew 23, 31, he says, you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murder the prophets. Why? Because they're going to murder the Messiah. Then he says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, this notion, this biblical notion of filling up the cup of judgment, or uh, you know, just like God said that about the Canaanites, too, like they would fill up the measure of their sin, and then that's when God would judge the Canaanites back in the Old Testament, right? Fill up the measure of your fathers. Uh, I sent you the prophets, some of you you killed and crucified. All the blood of the righteous on earth will be on this generation. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Kills the prophets, stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, you, your children together as hen gathers, yada, yada, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And and then Jesus sees the temple, and, and they say, they point to the buildings, and he says, I say, I, I, you see all these temples, these beautiful buildings? Do you not? Right. Mm-hmm. Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Thrown down now. What's the point here? Jesus is saying, the context of the very passage of Matthew 24, he's saying, look, you guys killed the prophets, and now this generation of Jews is going to kill the Messiah, and that is such a high crime that God is going to take, destroy, and leave your house desolate. Abomination of desolation, right? The house of God will be, will be desolated because of what you've done. Now there's another aspect to it about the old covenant, the God's elimination of the elements of the old covenant, but we can talk about that later.
3: Right, that's what I wanted to ask you about was the the phrase "into the age" and later "latter days," because that goes right into what you just said.
2: Yes, because in the very next thing, and, and by the way, uh, so there are now, as you guys probably talked about, there are varieties of interpreting Matthew 24. Some of it believe it's all in the future. Some of them will acknowledge, no, the first half is about the destruction of the temple. In yeah, 80%. I have
3: heard that, yes. Right. Mm-hmm.
2: And then somewhere halfway between, like, the abomination of desolation part or whatever, then that jumps to the future. Now, and I think part of the reason why they are saying this because they're starting to see the power of this, this argument and say it makes, it makes the most sense of the passage, you know? But nevertheless, um, so yeah, so... So he's talking about the destruction of the of the temple, which, by the way, at that time it was still built. So he's not talking about some future temple; he's talking about this temple, this time period, this generation that rejects Messiah. You know, he gives all these parables, right, about rejecting Messiah, like you know the parable of the vineyard and stuff. And so the context is very clear. And then and then he he's up at the Mount of Olives, and then that's when they that's when his disciples come aside privately and say, "Well, tell us." When will these things be, the destruction of the temple, right? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus goes off on the litany of all these things. Now, some people will see that phrase and say, oh, he's talking about several things. He's talking about these things, which might include the destruction of the temple, and then a separate thing, which is the sign of your coming. That's That happens in a different time period, and the end of the age is a different time period, right? But when you start to look into the meaning of – the end of the age, again, in its uh, you know biblical and Old Testament context, you start to see the end of the age is not the end of the world as we understand it. the The word for age is actually aeon. It's not cosmos or or you know physical universe or anything like that. It's the end of an age, the end of an era. And my argument would be that you know when you when you and I do this in my book. I you know this is where I, I try to give biblical arguments to explain all these things, you know, which we don't you know necessarily have time to look at all the details here. But when you study these phrases, "end of the age, last days," you find that it's a Jewish understanding that, the end of the Old Testament age. Why? Because the new age had come, Messiah had come, and the Messiah brings in the new age, the new covenant. And so my my argument is that when you study the phrase last days, you will find that it actually means the last days of, not the world or the universe, but the last mm-hmm. days of the old covenant. Right. Why? Because, guess what? If you say, I believe the last days are still yet to come. The problem is, is the writers of the old, of the New Testament said they were living in the last days. Hebrews one one says, God after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Why? Because they meant the last days of the old covenant. Because when the Messiah came. That's the last days of the old covenant, right? And then in Hebrews 9.26, he says, but now once at the consummation of the ages, that's that same uh, word, aeon, ages, that Jesus used. Now, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Peter in 1 first, in first Peter 1.20 says, for Jesus has appeared in these last days. And there's more, by the way, I could go over lots of them, but the point is, is if they believe that they were in the last days, the New Testament writers, the last days of what? The old covenant, that's what it ultimately is. And when you, when you study at the end of the ages, that that end of the age had come, because why? Because Messiah had come. And here's the problem. The problem was when Jesus died on the cross, he brought in the new covenant, the old covenant was eliminated, but the problem was, the the for you know two thousand years, whatever, no one thousand years, the temple had been the central focus, the physical earthly expression of the covenant of God with Israel was the city and temple. So, it, you gotta admit, it's a confusing time period. Where Jesus supposedly brings in the new covenant, which all Christians would admit, right? The old covenant is no longer in effect. The new covenant is now in, and faith in Christ and all this, right? But the, but the elements of the old covenant, the temple, is still there. So how can you have a new covenant, but the old covenant is still? Here's, here's what's so cool about it is. God is not a God of the abstract philosophy. Yes, he does spiritual truths, but he, off, he always works in history. What God accomplishes theologically Forensically and spiritually, in the new covenant death of Christ, that we we didn't see what happened spiritually, right? He just dies on the cross and he raised from the dead. But the point is, is we don't see this new covenant, right? Who who says so? Who God proves it? He takes away. He completely, uh, absolutely destroys the the whole outward covenant. This is what Hebrews is all about. He destroys the temple. Um, which is the the embodiment of the Old Covenant to prove that the New Covenant's here. And the writer of Hebrews is making that argument to them because keep in mind, the, right, Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed. They're all they're, – you know some of these – the Christian apostles knew it was coming, and they kept warning him. It's like, look, the, these, this element's going to be – these are going to be destroyed. So um, th- what I'm saying is it makes sense not just um, prophetically but historically and theologically – that God would, when the new covenant comes in, he also historically manifests that in the destruction of the old old covenant. But the problem is, is until that was destroyed, you've got this 40-year time period, hmm, a generation. right? 40-year time period from the time of the resurrection and ascension to the destruction of the temple. And the apostles in the book of Acts was living in that time period. So it's this confusing sort of mixture of, which is why they had so many problems with the Judaizers saying, okay, you can believe in Jesus, but – got to get circumcised, you got to go to temple, you got to do all this stuff, and you see the apostles still going to temple. Why are they going to temple if the new covenant has replaced the old covenant? Well, this is why because God has got a history, so there's a transition period where and this is one of the coolest, personally this is one of my personal favorite uh, uh, Bible verses about this because it really embodies the 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 essence of what's going on before the temple is destroyed. In Hebrews 8, 13, he's talking about, Hebrews 8, he's talking about the new covenant. The new covenant is better. It's better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. But he, of course, you know, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will establish a new covenant. So the writer is saying, look, the new covenant is coming. But then at the end of the verse, he goes, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. The old covenant is obsolete. And what is – now listen closely – what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Huh, Wait a minute. Okay. It sounds like he's huh. saying it's becoming obsolete, but it is obsolete. But it's growing old and ready to vanish away? What does that mean? They were in the transition period between the Old and New Covenant finalization. The New Covenant is, is inaugurated with Christ's death on the cross, but it's not consummated until the destruction of the Old Covenant embols. It was ready to vanish away. It hadn't happened yet. They were in that time period. It is obsolete, but it's not quite there yet. It's, it's getting ready to vanish away. You'll see. and and Which would make sense because all these Jewish Christians are saying – you're telling us to just walk away from the heart and soul of, of Israel for all of our history. And he's saying just the new covenants here and, and, and everything's obsolete, but just eventually all those elements will be destroyed and just give it some time basically. Right. So, so Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed. They were
3: living in that transition time period. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I want to ask you this, right, let's address this. Okay the um you have two schools of thought here: supersessionism, big word, and the dual covenant idea mm-hmm. Now, and you do address this in the book and you do a good job of addressing it, but you know there has been this whole movement lately, and they use the f- phrase and I think it's derogatory replacement theology yes to say that. Well, that's just being anti Semitic against the yes. Jews. And yes, the dual covenant idea is, is that there is there are Christians are under one covenant, but the Jews are still under their old one.
2: Yes. And this, this is the this is what's is the aspect of dispensationalism that has really held on to people. And um um sadly, uh it's it's created a sort of um a really a justification of evil, like, you know, in other words, because they believe Israel still has a special place with God, even though they're Christians, they believe that, um, dispensationalism says but God, they're still God's chosen people, uh, even though they reject Messiah, hate him, hate God, hate Yahweh, right, because Jesus said if you reject me, you hate the Father, even though they hate God, and, uh, e- even if they do atrocities that it's okay, and, uh, I am, by the way, you know, I am totally pro-israel and but n- not religiously just you know geopolitically in the modern nation-state yeah, I believe they have I every right, understand that yeah every right to defend themselves and destroy the terrorists who are trying to take them out I think they're being too nice to, you know but you know they have to be very political but my point is is I I support the modern nation-state of Israel but not for religious reasons more for just moral and you know spiritual uh, not spiritual but you know moral moral reasons so uh however i don't believe they have some kind of biblical uh justification to to do any kind of evil
3: and it's okay cuz they're god's chosen people right but yeah you get into that with some of this stuff you yes. know like uh they can do whatever they want over there as long as evangelicals will send them checks yes and yes can, and so yeah now this is so important that I had to write a separate booklet that you can
2: also get for like ninety nine cents online you know or actually if you go to my if you go and sign up at my my blog godaw uh, to just get on the mailing list you'll get a free an opportunity to get the free booklet about Israel in bible prophecy I go more into detail on this, but the short of it is this is yeah so so because the dominant view is uh, even though the church is now in 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 this time period where god is operating through the church ultimately when he starts up the end days god's probably going to rapture the church out and then he's going to deal with israel again because they're his chosen people and the fulfillment of prophecy is all about the geopolitical uh physical nation of israel um and so therefore they'll say you know the this preterist viewpoint or it's not even preterist viewpoint really because it's it's uh, you know it's reformed viewpoint. It's uh, many evangelicals hold to it. You know there's all. It's it's just another viewpoint. They'll call it replacement theology. Why? Because because we're saying no. Look, the Church of Jesus Christ is Israel because it consists of believers, uh, Jewish believers and Gentile believers in Messiah. And that is the fulfillment of God's promise. And that is Israel, because Israel was always the true Israel was always the you know believers in in Yahweh or in Messiah. It was the remnant. And so when when the nation of Israel, all this, you know, they'll they'll say, look at all this judgment that you talk about. Judgment, judging Israel, judging Israel, destroying everything, you know, like you're anti-Semitic. No, no. If you think that's anti-Semitic, you think God's anti-Semitic, because God's the one who prophesied it, not us. But just because God judged that first century generation for rejecting Messiah, that doesn't mean the same judgment is upon all Jews after that. And secondly, it doesn't, you know, just because God has b- brought Messiah and therefore a new covenant, which means the old is obsolete, um, and just because we're saying that unbelieving Jews are not God's chosen people because the chosen people are those who believe in Messiah. That's what the New Testament says. That doesn't mean we say the church replaces Israel. The the replacement theology notion is an attempt to be derogatory, uh, but I don't really care. If you want to use that term, it it doesn't bother me. But it's not really replacing Israel because the theology is such that, no, what we're saying is, The church is what Israel is. That's the church in the old covenant. The word for for church in Greek is ekklesia, which means, guess what? Congregation. What was Israel described as in the Old Testament? The congregation of the Lord. So the church is simply just a Greek new Greek word that is the same word for Israel, the Israel of God. And the point here is that when Messiah came, a traumatic historical event occurred. He didn't replace the Israel with the church. What he did was he grafted in Gentile believers with Jewish believers. But the problem is Jewish unbelievers were not are not Israel. Paul said not all Israel is Israel. What do you mean by that? What he means is only the believers are the true Israel. So you can be circumcised of flesh, but you're not circumcised of spirit. You're not real Israel. So therefore, the church— Now, uh, by God grafting in Gentiles, now both Jew and Gentile believers are that body of Christ, which is that strange hybrid that breaks the old covenant rules of separation, right? Why? Because the old covenant is obsolete. So therefore, if you look at it, it's it's really not a substitute or a supersessionism. Go ahead and use the term if you want. As far as I'm concerned, I don't care. But it's really not saying that. What it's saying is that no – Israel is the root, and Israel simply means the people of God. And what it means is the people of God is an international, according to the New Testament, Israel, the people of God, is an international body of believers in Christ from all nations. So therefore, if you're a Jew, a physical Jew, who uh, is living in Israel and you hate Jesus, the Messiah, you are not the chosen people. Sorry, Messiah. if you reject Jesus, you're not chosen, right? Um, and, and, and. So, if you see what I'm saying, there there really is no replacement going yeah. on. It's just simply there are people who've cut themselves off, and just because you are physically descended from Israel does not mean you are Israel.
3: Right. Well, like the, the, the grafted on thing, I, I've heard that too. To say that the current Jews now are actually grafted on to the body. Uh, in other words, it's the other way of it's the other way around. The unbelieving. Are grafted on with the believers. I've heard that too. Really, that's an idea that I've heard. Well, yeah.
2: I would argue that that's in direct contradiction because the scripture, you know, that scripture in Romans is actually talking about belief. Faith is the thing that grafts yeah. you on. So you can't say you're grafted on by an unbelief. Oh, that's right. They, there's a. I have heard people say make the argument that uh, something about. Oh, yeah, God brings Israel back as a nation in unbelief. They add that phrase as if that exists, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist
3: in the text. And this is part of the idea in dispensationalism, especially in uh, pre-tribulation, in in pre-tribulation, that um, the Christians are taken out of here. And part of that is so that the Jews can go through the tribulation and do what they need to do.
2: Yes. In yeah. other words, it's this picture of the physical nation, uh, the physical geopolitical Israel, is what it's all about, and 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 that's that's all from beginning to end. That's been God's plan from the start. And I would argue that um, I mean I I could have some really harsh words for that. I'm I'm going to try to be really really nice <laughs> and, and not say harsh words, but. Um, that that borders on denial of the gospel itself because, and I don't believe they're they're intentionally doing that, but what I'm saying is, um, uh, Paul in Galatians says, the promises to Abraham to his seed was singular to Christ, not plural, which means what he's saying is, you are not a child of Abraham physically. You are a child of Abraham spiritually through faith alone. Right. Yes, a physical Jew who has faith in Messiah is a child of Abraham. But a physical Jew who does not have faith in Messiah is not a child of Abraham. And Gentiles who have faith in Jesus as Messiah are children of Abraham. Why? Because Jesus is – the point here is he, Paul explicitly says the purpose of it all, the seed – is not the physical peep children, uh, or, or is not the physical descendants of Abraham? God can make a children of Abraham from rocks. That's what Jesus said, right? But the the point of the promise was Jesus, the Messiah. So in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled, right? All these promises of to Abraham and such, and because we're in Christ, we are then the chosen children of God. So to deny that, to say that's not the the point of scripture. The point of scripture is all about this physical people of Israel. It's almost like like you've just you've just uh, you know you've just traded in what is it? You've traded in your birthright for a, a mess of pottage. It's like mm-hmm. no, Jesus is the point of the whole book. Old and New Testament is Jesus, not physical Jews. And and so that's that's where I come well,
3: from. Well, let me ask you this, and here's the million dollar question. Okay, so. Is there still a second – from the preterist viewpoint, from your viewpoint, is there still a second coming in the future? Yes, I
2: still believe there is. Um, here's how I would best describe the situation. If we jump back to Matthew 24, and I think this is really important because, you know what, If when I went through – when I started studying Matthew 24 from and considering a different viewpoint, it started to make some sense. I go, yeah, okay, yeah. Wars and rumors of wars that happened in that time period. And there's some fascinating things, by the way, that I think prove these verses in Matthew 24 ha- happened back in the first century. Like, for example, wars and rumors of wars. You know, come on, Jesus. That ha- you can say that of any time period in all of history. So how is that a prophecy, right? But think about this. At that time period that he wrote that, they were under what's called Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome, which meant the Empire of Rome had so conquered the known world to them that they, would able, they were able to say, finally, we are, all, we are now in peace. We have the peace of Rome. It has settled that. So that was a time period where if you said you'll hear wars and rumors of wars, it would make more sense – than any other time period. And mm-hmm. I could go on with each of those. But but my point is, is as you're reading them, people would explain, okay, okay, uh, uh, you know, false cries, false prophets that happened in the first century. We know that book of Acts. Okay. Earthquakes and famines. Yeah, that happened in the first century. Okay. We can talk all about the abomination and the desolation. That's a whole other talk. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, great tribulation. I, I can see how you can make the point. Uh, how most of these, but when you get to the point where it says, uh, and even even sun, moon, and di- sun darkened, and the stars fall from heaven. Look, when God destroys the temple, and and destroys the the, the people of Israel, because Josephus, you know, famous Jewish historian, wrote about how you know a million were murdered in that in, in the in the fall of Jerusalem, and. You know, I don't know how many tens of thousands were taken away into captivity. Right? Uh, they were the, the the powers of Israel were demolished. And what what did we learn in the Old Testament? The sun darkened, moons fall. That's a description of the 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 um, you know the governmental powers or authority, people in power falling, losing their authority, and and uh, that fits. So it's it's. It's uh, figurative. It's not literal. The powers of the heaven be shaken. That's a reference to covenants as well. But then when it says, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and glory. Surely that was the the sticking point for me. That was the thing that was the most hard thing for me to go, come on. That surely hasn't happened. How can you say that? But honestly, as I stand before you now – Honestly, after studying it in the Old Testament, I would actually argue that's the easiest thing to prove, which is ironic, right? Now, why do I say that? Because this phrase about coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, this is another one of those cases where what do we picture in our mind? Jesus surfing on these cumulus nimbus, right? Right. It, you know, literally surf, surfing in on a cumulus nimbus from the clouds, right? And so, but again, I started looking into the old covenant, and this was led by guys like Gary DeMar and Ken Gentry, where that you know they 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 would uh, make these arguments, but they they went into the scriptures, and I saw it for myself. And I'm telling you, it it's so clear and obvious now. You go back. Well, first of all, you don't have to go back to Old Testament. Just go back to Matthew itself. And there's multiple times where Jesus says about Son of Man coming on the clouds, and it, he says it as if it's going to happen then, not in the future. He goes, Matthew 16, classic verse, he's um, – I think he's uh, – yeah, he's, he's standing amidst uh, some of the religious leaders, and he says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will repay everyone according to what they've done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I mean, what else could that mean? I mean, people right standing right here, he's, he's like telling it for the literalist, you know. Uh, you guys, some of you aren't going to die before I come. Uh, and, and there's other passages where he does the same thing, you know, in Matthew where, where he says this. So so th- there are other passages that say him him coming – on the clouds will occur in their lifetime. So it's not just this arbitrary thing. But the concept of coming on the clouds, let me, in in short, up front, let me me just say this. That means a coming in judgment, but not the physical return of Christ. That is something that is something else. So uh, what I'm saying is, yes, I believe in the physical return of Christ, but This passage is not referring to that because the particular – first of all, the context was all about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. But also, you go back in the Old Old Testament, and you can find this concept of God coming on the clouds to judge, all right? So, uh, for example, let me find uh, one of the good ones, Um, coming on the clouds of judgment. Okay, so here's a good one. Um. Uh, oh, the well, classic one was um, against Egypt. That's one of the classic ones. Um, Ezekiel thirty says, "For the day is near; the day of the Lord is near." There it is again. And if you read e- Ezekiel thirty, it is a it is described as a a oracle of judgment against Egypt in that ancient time period of Ezekiel, not in the future. And he says, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom. A sword will come upon Egypt. But that's not even the the coolest one. The coolest one is Isaiah 19, which is a prophecy, again, concerning Egypt, which was fulfilled in about 701 BC. Uh, And it says, the oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. And in Isaiah 30, he's talking about Assyria. The God will come on the clouds, come on the clouds. And you start to study where these passages and this phrase of God coming on a cloud. Did God literally come on a cloud? Do we have any historical reference to that? Physically, they saw God. What would God look like coming on the clouds anyway? I mean, I I thought our eyes couldn't see him. But he says every time he judges a nation or a city – he describes it as if he's coming on a cloud which incidentally Jews aren't the only ones who use that terminology you look at Canaanite language the same mm-hmm. thing was used of their god baal baal was called the cloud rider he came on the clouds to judge so what i'm saying is it's now clear to me that if god did not literally come on the clouds because we have no you know we have no historical proof that that happened but he's using it poetically to describe whenever he uses another nation to destroy another nation, he's the one who's coming and judging them. He's coming on the clouds. And by the way, clouds coming is another. There's it, this is a deep, deep subject because it also has, is a reference to um, to deity. You know, the classic chapter is Daniel seven, where it talks about how the Son of Man comes on a cloud up to the throne of God. And this is an ex- cloud riding was something that deities did. So it also talks about his deity, but nevertheless, uh, that, that's just a real brief intro to the notion that, that – that got me to thinking, okay, well, if if in the Old Testament, whenever God judges city, he said he was literally coming on the clouds, but that didn't happen physically, but that's a spiritual expression of God using a nation to judge another nation – well then why would it be a problem? Why wouldn't it mean the same thing to the Jews of the first century who were steeped in that old testament? So there that's one of the ways that I came to I came to conclude, you know what? The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory to judge Israel for rejecting him as Messiah. It fits it fits the poetic paradigm perfectly. Now, I would argue there are other chapter other there are other Bible chapters like Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, that, do, that talks about a, a, a second coming of Christ. But that's another topic for, to discuss. It's just the point that um, just because you see – just because uh, one scripture now means something differently than what you thought doesn't mean everything else is the same. You know, you've, got to, you've got to look at, at these prophecies within their context and be careful about them. I'm not saying this is an easy thing and I'm not saying everything's figurative, because I would say there are some things that are literal, right? Like I argued this generation was literal, didn't I? So it's but you have to balance it against other scripture to find out are these phrases or things that are common or not, you know? Right. And that's that's the that's the challenge. That's the challenge. But that was that was the thing that got me thinking, okay, even this aspect. And, like I said now i 've studied so much in the Old Testament that it 's just so obvious to me that Jewish mindset that i can 't imagine anyone thinking of it any other way right and and yet to the evangelical that 's the hardest passage to prove mm-hmm. but that just goes I would argue that just goes to show you you need to immerse yourself in this ancient Jewish mindset because it's not it 's not the normal way that we think
3: well Brian uh We're running out of time, but in the time that we have left, I want to talk a little bit about Chronicles of the Apocalypse. And uh, I want to talk about what this this book series is going to be about. And also, is there ever going to be another Chronicle of the Watchers? Yeah. Yes, there will be eventually
2: Chronicles of the Watchers. I have set it aside so that I could do this Chronicles of the Apocalypse, which I felt was just pressing on me like, like nothing else, you know. Gotcha. I'm, so, so here's the deal. We we spent all this time talking about the theology. So obviously, I love it, don't I? You know, I mean, I, 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 I. But you know what? To be honest with you, I have a real. I try to have an appreciation for those many Christians who are just too overwhelmed with this notion of look how study these systems. They're all intricate. They're all complex. I don't have time and quite frankly a lot of people don't have that that I I that interest, you know. Now I do think you should as a Christian, you should study the Bible, but I'm 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 acknowledging the fact that some things can be very complex and I actually believe that fiction or you know storytelling is a way to embody theology. Um, in a very powerful way that's entertaining and a little bit easier for those who are not as inclined to the more abstract ways of you know of thinking if that makes sense so i, I don't judge people for having different types of personalities and i think some are, are more abstract and love the theology and some you know are are more concrete and they you know they they relate better to the storytelling you know so i'm a, i'm a both and guy and and But I have to say that, particularly when it comes to end times belief, one of the best ways of embodying it is through the story. And so that's what inspired me to go, hey, you know. Oh, and by the way, after I wrote Chronicles of the Nephilim, and being influenced by Heiser and seeing this Watcher paradigm in the in the Bible, and I saw the Divine Council paradigm, and it's so funny because I had never thought of writing this series about the apocalypse it wasn't until i finished the last one the nephilim and i was i was writing about jesus and his parables and i started thinking wait a minute i've always avoided revelation why because it's it's so complex and there's a hundred you know every literally every scholar who writes on a revelation has a different interpretation so really why bother you know but you know i started realizing um you know you can't neglect one aspect of God's word just because it's too complex. You've got to try, you've got to get in there and put in the hard work. So I started getting back, studying in revelation and I realized, Oh my gosh, not only is it the most supernatural book in the Bible, but it, it fits the, the watcher paradigm, the divine counsel motif uh, better than any other new Testament book. So I thought, Oh, and I suddenly saw how they fit in with my, my, my worldview. And, um, so so that's what with the inspiration. And but my goal was, you know, and I saw the power of 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 left behind, you know, and you could call this a preterist left behind if you want, but <laughs> I look, I, I'm a Hollywood guy. I love to tell great and exciting action stories, and I, I love entertainment. So my one of my top goals is really to make this entertaining. It's not it's not to preach my my viewpoint. What I'm getting at is you don't have to have my view about the end times to to appreciate this novel and, and get something out of it. Why? Because of this. So I decided to write a story about – I wanted to make it fascinating, interesting, not just this rattling off scriptures and stuff, but – so I wrote it like a conspiracy theory where – let's tell the story about when john wrote the book of revelation in the first century because that was a very fascinating time period right nero is persecuting the christians this is where we 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 learned about throwing christians to the lions it was nero who came up with that stuff right and uh and and john's writing you know this book and you know he's writing it in coded language because he would get in trouble and uh you know so and it's like the last book of the of the new testament so i decided to tell the story of how that came about and how i think it does apply to that first century but the truth is is the events that occur in starting with the great fire of rome and and nero sets the fire probably and he blames it on the christians and he persecutes the christians there is just so much I think that one of the main elements of Revelation that is so important is it's about encouragement to the martyrs, to those who who are martyred for the faith. Why? Because at that time period, Christianity was almost wiped out, man. And but God was saying, "No, don't worry. It's not going to be. I'm going to come and and I'm going to stop it. I'm going to judge and all this." But I wanted to tell what happened to the Christian church in that time period in entertaining way and and to show. Spiritually, to try to pull back that curtain and show what what might it have looked like uh, with the gods of the nations in that time period as well, and how that fits in with the Book of Revelation. So I wanted it to be historically accurate. I've been following the uh, the only historical uh, book that we have that tells the most detail is by Josephus, the Wars of the Jews, and it tells all about what led up to the the fall of the temple. And Jerusalem in 70 AD. So that's the story I'm telling. I'm kind of following Josephus. I'm telling what happened from the time that Christians got persecuted up to the time where Rome came and destroyed that city, and then what were the Christians doing, and then how does it fit in with Revelation? And so I'm weaving in, and and I knew that Christians who are not used to this viewpoint are going to go, what? How does (laughs) that—prove it to me! No way! That can't be what—so I I footnoted the entire novel, and I didn't just put citations. I actually took out chunks of scholarship, so that half of the book is literally footnotes. So, if you're the kind of person who's like wants to read it, enjoy it. it trust me, it's going to be a wild ride, and uh, you know you might even have different view but point. But say it doesn't matter. I learned a lot about the historical time period, and that's a, and that's a good enough. But though for those of you who want to challenge it or figure out well where did you get that from. I provide footnotes so that you can dig deeper into it. And so that was kind of the the scenario. But – I start telling a story about uh, a Christian, a Jew, and a Roman who are on this journey of trying to track down the book of Revelation because they heard about this nefarious subversive letter that's been written by these Christians and they got to track it down and find it and and Nero's the one who's after them and so it's this it's this exciting sort of um, conspiracy thr- thriller type story that leads us on this this chase all across Rome and and ultimately ends up in Jerusalem. And I, I also tell the true history of what happens as well. So that's sort of the the the, the p- picture that I that I paint. And and um, I honestly, my fans have already been telling me it's the best one I've written of all my novels. Oh wow,
3: awesome! So, yeah. How, how many is it going to be in this series? Probably three. Okay. Uh, uh, however, they might it to be pretty big,
2: three big novels <laughs> because there's a lot. I don't know, but maybe four, but probably three. And and the last ones, the last two, the next two are going to be bigger than the first one. I think they each get get bigger. So yeah. I'm very excited about it. The first book focuses on Nero, the first persecution, uh, the the original writing of the Book of Revelation. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the second book, the Remnant, which is what I'm working on now, halfway through it. That tells the story about how Christians, um, actually, when the when the Roman armies start to descend upon Israel, the Christians were the ones that, because of the, these prophecies, they got out. They because the you know judgment was coming, and so they got out. So I tell the story of how the Christians discovered this and interpreted the Book of Revelation, and then how they got out of the city. And then the you know the the last book is going to tell about then the, the the siege of Jerusalem by Titus, and and I tell. I tell stories about mm. the Romans and what was going on with them. I try to tell a story, a supernatural story about the gods and Satan. And uh, when I say the gods, if you know the the Chronicles of Nephilim, the gods mm, is sure. simply a reference to the fallen watchers that are that are that are the divine beings from the divine, God's divine council and how they play into this. And I've got a lot of supernatural story going on there, so it, it, it's very fantastic and and very historical, uh, somewhat biblical, but eminently i i believe very entertaining
3: and where are these books available
2: all on amazon everything's on amazon all the way i'm gonna have the uh, i've got kindle paperback on amazon but also audiobooks gonna come out within a month and um if if there's a lot of information on amazon anyway on the books i always just go direct but if people want to Find out more about this if they're curious. I, my website, Godawa.com, you can go there. I've got free articles, free books that you can get that deal with all the stuff that I'm dealing with in these in, in all my novels. I've got cool pictures of the cast and characters in all the novels as well as description of what's going on. So there's a lot of cool free stuff to explore it. If you really want to find out before you even buy it, you know, you can go to get but there's enough to, to, to sell you if you just go straight to Amazon.
3: Well, excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Brian so much. Uh, It's been very informative. I think we only just like really scratched the surface (laughs) on this, on this stuff. So, well,
2: well look, when I get the next book in, then, yeah. then you get me on again, and we'll we we'll can start to go even deeper. You know that'd be fun.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We'll get a little more into the theology as well. I think. Yeah. Well, stay on the line for us, Brian. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we will be right back on Conspiracy Normal. <laughs>
4: All right, we are back. Um, fascinating as always. Hello, Brian. Yeah, I do too. I, I do too. I sort of understand it better now.
3: <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's a complex thing. I mean, all this stuff is really complex, and there's a lot of there's a lot of different places that you got to go and look to find all this stuff in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I, I, the book really fascinated me. I mean, I, honestly, I, I can't. I can't recommend it enough. I know I'm not sure that I could really say that I'm not gonna say that like I'm a preterist now because I read this book, but I will say like, you know, hear it out. It's a I mean, he makes some interesting points. So I will say that. And and I I just I love his writing style. I mean it's very easy, it flows. Um and his fiction is great as well. So, you know, definitely check Brian out. Um I think that's about it. I don't really have anything else to really share unless you have any questions or anything. Uh, Nope. Who do we got on next week, Adam? We have Nick Redfern coming on next week. Yay. For real this time. <laughs> we have Nick Redfern coming on. We're going to talk about uh, Secret Societies. He has a new book out. One, I think this is like his 1,378th book. Nice. So we're going to talk to him, and hopefully we'll be doing a Patreon only thing with him as well for about thirty minutes, and we should have um a, another Patreon with another guest on by the time that this po- that this is posted. So that's what I'm hoping anyway. Nice. So guys, um, on behalf of Rob and myself and Luke, I want to thank you all for listening and tell them about Patreon one more time.
4: Yeah, check out our growing Patreon community at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Different tiers, different subscriptions you can sign up for. Like Adam was saying, we do the monthly uh, bonus episodes on there. Those are a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And yeah, check it out.
3: Yeah, absolutely, guys. Well, join us next time. We will talk about some weird secret society stuff on Conspiranormal. Conspiranormal. I'm tired.